Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or the Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U, capital R, capital P. Our topic today is Design for Social Innovation. Our guest is Cheryl Heller, the founding chair of the MFA program in Design for Social Innovation at the School of Visual Arts in New York City and president of the design lab CommonWise. She was recently awarded a Rockefeller Bellagio Fellowship and is a recipient of the prestigious AIGA Medal for her contribution to the field of design. She founded the first design department in a major advertising agency, and as a strategist, she has helped grow businesses from small regional enterprises to multi-billion dollar global market leaders and design strategies for hundreds of successful entrepreneurs. Her book, The Intergalactic Design Guide, will be published shortly by Island Press, and she is currently working on her PhD at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it took me a little while to, your resume and your uh, vita is so long, it took me a little while to boil that down, but uh, very impressive and, and done a lot of really great work. I think it would be a great place to start for our listening audiences to explain what Design for Social Innovation is. Sure. The simplest way to think about it is the same process that's been used forever to invent new products and services, those things we live with all the time, applied at a different scale. It is a collaborative process that in which a lot of people engage within an organization or a city or any other community. So it's performed by multiple people at the same time, very diverse groups. And it's also expanded from the idea of a sequential series of steps, right? That organizations, usually they do a strategy and then they plan and then they budget and then they design something and then they go and test it, right? It collapses the whole system so that design is a mindset that's used from the moment you define a vision or a moonshot for it until you finish. And throughout that process, you have a diverse team of people working on it. Yeah, there's a number of things there I'd like to come back to. But I think one of the other things I thought as reading reading the book that I thought was really informative and and transforming in terms of thinking was, I'm going to quote you in the book, that social design is the best method we have to create a viable future for our civilization because it transforms us as it changes the things around us. So it's kind of this notion, my sense is it's notion of design, not just in terms of designing a 
physical thing or a place, but also that process is more about how we as humans interact with each other and with those things, I guess, right? Exactly right. One of the things that happens is when people work together, it changes them. When someone is given a voice and invited into a creative process, it transforms them. When teams come together and they're not the you, you know business as usual team of experts, team of engineers or team of lawyers, it changes people to work with others who have a different view of the world than they do. And so I like to say it's almost the secret sauce of social design. We say the process is the strategy. So in practicing social design, it changes people. It gives them a greater sense of agency. It teaches them how to reframe problems. It makes them better communicators and better collaborators. And they are able to bring those same skills to other parts of their life and work. And so the core notion of this is we've been tackling the same problems, right? Einstein's definition of insanity. We bring the same level of thinking and expect the outcome to be different. This changes us. It, it opens us up. It makes us more creative. It makes us more inclusive. It makes us more empathetic. Do you sense that this approach design, I think that's all super important to think about, but do you sense that this approach to design, more participatory, where the designer is less an expert and more of a facilitator, results in better outcomes, not just in terms of people buying into the outcomes and people being transformed, but the actual specific solutions, whether they be physical or systems, are actually better systems? I think they're better systems because the approach is systemic. In other words, one of the first steps in this social design process is a scoping or mapping of the ecosystem in play. And I'll give you an example. Paul Pollock is one of the most extraordinary social designers in the world. He actually started out as a psychiatrist, and in doing his research, his instinct was not to invite people into his office at the clinic to interview them. He wanted to see their life and their world, and he wanted to understand why lots and lots of people walk around on the streets with mental disease, but only some of them have episodes that hospitalize them. And one of the things he saw many, many years ago he named social architecture. What he saw was that people become mentally ill because they're homeless and because they're poor or because somebody's coming in randomly and beating them in the middle of the night. You know, that these things are never separated. The, the parts never indicate the whole system. And so this idea of looking at all of the dynamics and issue or what's going on and solving for all of those dynamics by definition means that the outcome has a more systemic perspective. So we see more of the design field changing, at, at least at the edges. There's more, we see organiz, you know, architectural organizations like Moss, we see designers talking more about this more participatory process. Again, I, I think of it as the designer as facilitator as opposed to the designer as genius, you know, the, the inventive genius. Although there are genius facilitators. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sorry. And I can't come up with can't come up quite the right term, but more of the kind of the right, the designer is expert. It's almost as designer as outsider and magician, right? Give me the assignment, let me go away. I'm gonna come up with something that you couldn't think about on your own because I know best about what it ought to be. 
And then you, you know, you bring that back and you present it to this group. It's designer as insider and the notion of designing with and not for. And while we're seeing it at the edges, the design field is still dominated by the old paradigm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's step back for a second. One of the other things that you mentioned earlier was the notion of once you have a vision, this design process starts. I would assume that the first question is, do we have the right vision, right? I mean, that's seems to me like that would be the most innovative approach is to, are we asking the right question? Do we have the right design problem? And does the the social innovation process start there and question that? Is that that the first place you start? It does. It starts with that that moonshot, which becomes the aligning principle within which lots and lots of people can see a future that they want. And a great example is Jeffrey Brown, who founded Brown Superstores in Philadelphia. He basically has a very successful for-profit grocery business selling in food deserts to people in the poorest neighborhoods of Philadelphia. And he will tell you that he is in the business of ending poverty and the grocery stores are a way to do that. And so most business people, I would assume, who want to grow a big grocery store would say their goal is to grow a big grocery store. So that definition of the vision, if it doesn't begin by including a social outcome, then you never get there. And if you include a social outcome, one of the conditions for success is that you have to be sustainable and you have to be successful. You kind of, I would say you get that for free, whereas you don't get the other higher purpose for free if you start just defining it by financial success or, or some kind of personal success. So in my experience, there's, there's a couple of obstacles to taking the approach that the approach that you lay out in your book. One is the kind of the existing paradigm, what people are used to doing, what people's expectations are, how the field of design sees itself. And then the other is the perception, I think, on a lot of people's parts that public participation in engaging stakeholders is expensive and, and you know, kind of like a, it's a luxury to be able to have the resources to engage participants at that level. And I think a lot of people see public participation as kind of more of a PR and a marketing piece to a project rather than it is kind of foundational to coming up with a better design, that somehow these participants will know more about what needs to happen than the outside professionals. So what would be the counter argument to those folks who just, they say, we just can't afford to do this kind of level of participation and engagement in our projects? I think there's three categories of, and by the way, you'll tell me if I'm my answers are going on in too long. They're not as long as my questions. So that's <laughs> that was a long question and I was making notes while you were doing it. So I'll try to address sort of three categories of barriers. One is there are misperceptions about the costs and the time invested in this. And they are different, but I'll give you an example. IBM has spent almost the last decade shifting from an engineering-led culture to a design-led culture. It's been painful. It's been time-consuming. They have leadership that was hugely supportive of this. They just had Forrester Research do a study. They have proven that they're getting products to market faster. There are fewer redos and errors because they're already tested. There is greater innovation and they're saving money and on the process and making more money. There's an initial shift. And one of the real barriers to this is 
it requires people who are accustomed to doing things in a certain way to change. As you know, the hardest thing for anyone is to change themselves, right? Everybody would be like, yeah, I'd love to do that. And they start at the bottom of the organization. And until it gets to the point where, well, I meant, you know, I'm very happy to change, but I didn't mean me. And so people who have power that is based on decisiveness, that is based on being the smartest person in the room, that's based on demanding quick answers from everybody who works for them, this is a, it's a huge threat. And I think one of the things we have to get better at as people who want to integrate social design into organizations is understanding that resistance and those fears are real and we shouldn't ignore them. Sometimes I think we come in and we say, oh, hey, this is really going to be fun. You're going to get post-it notes on your own markers and all that stuff. Well, that's a very naive way to introduce it because it doesn't recognize the real changes that we're, that people need to make. So how would you introduce it? Well, I think you, first of all, you start with people who either are feeling the pain and know they want to change or the people who are inclined to do it, right? We start with a group of, of people who are willing and we create a model. You know, it's Bucky Fuller's idea that you don't try to change the old system. You create a new system that attracts people to it. And one of the abilities that design has always had is to make things desirable. And this process can be as desirable as sexy products and services, but you don't, you don't go in and try to change the whole thing. You, we typically do is say, let's take one project and let's, let's try this different way of thinking and different way of working on this one project. So you, you mentioned IBM and, and it seems to me that you see a lot of corporations taking these kind of different approaches, uh, innovative approaches to how they see themselves, how they design themselves, not, not across the board, but you, you see larger corporations doing this. And I'm wondering the degree to which those organizations have a lot of resources. There's a lot of upside for them. Do you have examples of public agencies, public entities that may see themselves as being more resource constrained, taking the kind of approach that you outline in your book? Sure. There, there's one that isn't in the book, but it's in a research project that we're doing as a follow-up. There is a group in the New York City Office of Economic Development they call themselves a service design lab, and their role there is to teach government agencies how to use this social design process to develop better services for the people of the city who depend on them. And it's constrained tremendously, not because the city doesn't have money, but because people are looking at how public money gets spent, and there's enormous responsibility to prove the value of this. So as they're going along, they're engaging in a measurement project to look at the value of absolutely everything they're doing. And it doesn't take a lot of money. Obviously, there are people involved, but they've done really innovative things like they have office hours and they invite people from any agency in with a problem. And they'll just give them an overview of what social design is and they'll help them think about the problem in a new way. And it just gives people a taste. Now they're working on some bigger projects, but they're very innovative. And I would say one of the other things we talk about is the notion of the power that limitations have to inspire creativity. The more specificity almost and the, the greater the constraints, the more opportunity to innovate around that. One of the things that you, that you said in your book that I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about was 
He said that social design requires a kind of ignorance, a state of mind some call not knowing, a willingness to reconsider things we thought we knew, to avoid making fast conclusions based on superficial assessment. It discounts the very things that have been rewarded inside corporations. So how do you achieve that state in different organizations where people have some often have a strong sense of what should be or how things should be, or we've always done that? How do you get people to have an open mind or, or that not knowing mind that you're looking for? Everything about this process needs to be learned through experience. One of the things that happens all the time when we talk about kind of user experience and putting the user in the middle, the first thing experts of all kinds will say is, I know my user. And if it's in a big corporation, they're true, right? I mean, think about the the marketing research that gets done. These companies know how many times people brush their teeth and what kind of deodorant they're using and everything about them. And likewise, with nonprofit efforts, people who've been out in the field, they absolutely know their audiences. But if you can get them in a room and have them experience the kinds of surprises, the kinds of unexpected learnings that take place when you really engage in this system. And we talk about the difference between working to a plan and working in an emergent way. When you work to a plan or when you think you know what you're going to find or you're going out testing an idea, you pretty much measure everything about whether things are aligning to what you anticipated. When you get to the point of actually listening and don't aren't so reliant on an idea that you are bringing to it, you are much more open to pay attention to resistance that you didn't expect to be there or points of energy that, that are unexpected. And you end up being much more creative in the moment and coming to conclusions and coming to, to outcomes that you couldn't have imagined. Once someone experiences that, and we've seen implementers out in the field who swear they're not going to learn anything new. And that experience makes turns people into converts. So in your book, do you, so if I'm a, I'm a designer or a planner, and I think you make a point that you don't have to be a designer to learn this process and apply this process. How do I go about learning the process? And are there some basic principles that, that you follow, or is there a step-by-step process in order to implement a social design project? There is a process that's driven by inquiry. And you mentioned one of them already, you know, the, the idea of the vision. Why are we here really? And what are we trying to do? What is the ultimate reason? Why does, what are the conditions in the world that make this an urgent thing to do? And throughout, there is a series of questions that need to be answered. It can be a little confusing to say that it doesn't require experts because a lot of experts are involved. There are parts of this that are best done by bringing people together in a team that have that do know the process and know the audience really well. So we like to think about it as get a guide who will take you through the practice and take people in your organization or your community through the practice so that people develop the muscle memories of what it is. The notion, one of the things that makes me a bit insane is this idea, and it's one of the misconceptions, that you can do a four-day workshop and you come out of it ready to intervene in people's lives in a totally different way. There is real rigor in it, and there's an enormous amount of, of discipline and of knowledge to do it well. And you mentioned earlier that these things might be more time-intensive or costly upfront. I think you know my experience is 
having worked on hundreds of projects, is people are, we do a lot of investment in these two, three, four day workshops that end up with no results. Well, you can have a lot of post-it notes on the walls. Yeah. Or you could really fabulous plans that are a hundred pages long with lots of great <laughs> yeah. pictures. And nobody it. ever reads. Yeah, exactly. Right. You almost have to start with kind of reassessing that whole dynamic where yes, okay, your budget's 50, say $50,000, but $50,000 with zero return is a horrible investment. You just, you might as well not make the $50,000 investment. You should Think about how do you pull those things together and, and do a more intensive project that actually has outcomes. So the intergalactic design guide, what's the motivation behind the intergalactic design guide? Where's, where did the term intergalactic come from? Well, David Orr, who the environmental writer and teacher at Oberlin, professor at Oberlin, was one of the people I read who slapped me into a different kind of awakening about what I was doing in the corporate world and what I needed to do. And one of the things he said that I read about 15 years ago is that as Homo sapiens entry into any intergalactic design competition, our civilization would be tossed out at the qualifying round. He goes on to say it doesn't fit, it won't work, it's not sustainable, it's toxic, etc. And at the time, I was thinking, Wow, he's laying the whole thing at the feet of design. And it's true, right? We, what humans have created is not sustainable. And so I started thinking about whether design could address some of these things. And just that quote had been in my head for many years. And as I thought about developing a view of design that was at a bigger level than all of the confusing terminology we, we use and all of the business talk and all of the sound bites, right? That this idea of really stepping back and saying, what matters at a real survival level? That was the inspiration that I used. And the book is fantastic. I've not had a chance to read the entire book. I've read pieces of it in preparation for the podcast. And I've pre-ordered the book. Maybe by the time folks listen to the podcast, it will be available from Island Press, but it at currently it will be available shortly. And the book is just fantastic. I think it's a kind of a must read for anybody who, who works in a profession where they are involved in design processes or planning or, or really just, I think, for citizens in, in general, just to really rethink how do we think about the problems that we have and how are we going to approach solving them? Cheryl, you also are the founding chair of the MFA program in design for social innovation at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Can you just share with our audience a little bit about how that came to be, how that program came to be, and and how that program is different than traditional design programs? Sure. Well, an amazing friend, Richard Wilde, who is the chair of the undergraduate design program at SVA, talked me into teaching and said, because I was resistant, he said, Think of a class that would really solve a problem that you see in design education. And what I saw as the problem is that designers are taught techniques, they're taught technology, and they're taught self-expression. But completely left out is what you do with that or how you connect that to the world or how you, how you make sure you're responsible and you're having the impact you want to have in the world. So I developed an undergraduate class that addressed that. And about five years later, SVA said, what would that look like as a graduate program? And because I didn't know, I said, let's find out. And the program's in its eighth year. We started it nine years ago, but it, but it's by the time we recruited, it's nine years. It is what's one interesting thing is that only about half of the people there are designers or have design backgrounds. We've got engineers and economists and business people. 
it teaches at a very systemic level the skills that people need to recognize needs, to research them, to facilitate the process of addressing them, and to, to implement it. So it's a combination of technology. They use their taught artificial intelligence and virtual reality, and they, they use those. One, one of our students used uh, AI to develop a, a Facebook bot that helps non-English speakers and people with little uh, computer literacy how to navigate a job search. And then they learn game design because it's a really wonderful skill and a wonderful methodology for engaging people. They learn research, they learn communication design and leadership and entrepreneurship. Most design programs are still focused on the craft of design. It's how do you use technology? How do you develop products? How do you brand? How do you build a building? How do you design a car? There aren't many programs. There, there are more, thankfully, that are cropping up. But the programs, for the most part, don't focus on design at a systems level, design at a larger scale, or these power skills that allow people to coordinate a process that works at scale. So Cheryl, maybe in the few minutes that we have left, maybe you could share a project either out of the book or one of the projects your students have done that you think just highlights the, the great promise and innovation that can occur through social design. One of our students, Josh Trehoft, came to the program just really fixated with food waste. A buddy of his had gotten a gig with a caterer and was working at a big fundraiser for some feed everyone on the planet cause. And Bono was in the front of the room getting everyone whipped up about how we have to feed everyone on the planet. And these guys were in the back working the catering gig, scraping full plates of food in the trash. And they were so moved by that discrepancy and that, that flaw in our brains that Josh went on. He spent the whole two years he was in school trying to address and trying to find a way to get people to stop wasting food. Well, of course, he learned that you can't tell people to stop wasting food. They don't want to change what they're doing. And you can't even, they don't want to hear about the food they waste. It's a very uncomfortable conversation for them. By using the social design process, and I'll come back and explain a little bit more in a second, he tapped into, almost inadvertently, he tapped into the foodie culture and he realized that what people love to do is talk about food, invent new recipes, be uh, creative in how they do it. And he ended up finding a huge community of people who started helping him figure this out when he switched from taking something away from people to getting them excited about creating themselves. He ended up working with a chef, developing a pop-up restaurant called the Salvage Supper Club, that serves gourmet meals with food that's diverted from landfill, meaning the uh, farmer's market stuff that they weren't going to sell that day because it was bruised, or, or restaurants that didn't use the broccoli stems, or grocery stores that couldn't sell bruised bananas. So they put on these gourmet meals, and the brilliance of it, they had these dinners in swept-out dumpsters on the streets of Brooklyn. And so People were so excited to come. He got written up in the Times and Fortune Discovery made a film about him and he ended up having huge influence. 
to the point where some professional chefs in New York did virtually did something very similar about six months later. But the whole thing became an opportunity for a story. When you sit down to one of these meals, number one, you don't know what you're having because what you're having depends on what they collected. Number two, everything has a provenance and it just brings people together around the conversation. And then the delight of sitting in a dumpster which I think is one of the most remarkable things that designers do, right? We have the capacity to delight people. And that was a big part of what Josh did. Very nice. That was a great story. Cheryl, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you so much for the, the book. I think it's a great contribution to the field of design and, and a must read for folks. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.